Hello and welcome to Coastal Connections, The Road to the Isles. The podcast exploring the timelessly alluring appeal of the West Highlands of Scotland. I'm Neil Robertson, a travel writer living in Loch Aber. And I'm the producer, Freya. Together, we've been roaming the hills, culture and coastline of Loch Aber, from Malig to Ardnamurkin, to introduce you to the fabulous people, produce and nature that are unique to this place. And we hope we'll inspire you to come here in the way that we really think suits it best, slowly, gently and ready to make connections. Well, that's what we've been doing. In our last episode, we were exploring the beautiful waters of Loch Sunart. And today, we're a wee bit farther along the road in Arasig. Neil, you're a local resident. Could you give us a wee introduction to the area? With pleasure. The extremely picturesque village of Arasig is um, it's about a 10-minute drive from the region's primary hub of Malig and just off the A830, which is, of course, the road to the Isles. It's a, it's a bustling wee place in tourism season, but it's got a calming stillness in the colder months. Inland, Arasig is protected by beautiful but very much inhospitable walls of rock, the so-called rough bounds, where the coastline between Arasig and Malig boasts some of the most loved beaches in the islands. And they are loved for a reason. You've probably heard someone comparing these beaches to the Caribbean, and yeah, that is pretty much exactly what it's like. Yes, it's uh, it's not got the same uh, the same numbers of tourists. That's the only big advantage <laughs> for the Caribbean. The temperature isn't exactly the same, but in terms of the the beauty of it, the raw and rugged nature of it, for me, there's there's nothing like it. The mainland has has some absolute crackers, and the islands as well. Some of the Hebridean beaches are just out of this world. Mm. And anyone who's been will know exactly what we've been talking about. It's not something that you necessarily associate with Scotland and the UK, but um, good luck beating them. I totally agree with you. This is a part of the UK it is well worth learning about. To continue the little bit of geography around here, across the water, only the Hebrides stand between us and North America, with the outline of the small isles and the jagged, distinctive ridges of Skye's Coolin dominating the views to the west. Oh, and the seafood around here is different class, just in case you needed another reason. And that's what we're all about today. This episode is designed to whet your appetite because we were lucky enough to meet two people who make their living from the delicious shellfish that the area has to offer. As we'll hear in just a moment, fishing has always played a big part in the economy of Malig and the surrounding areas. The village simply would not have existed without it. But in recent generations, things have changed a lot and the industry has had to adapt. Changing international markets, regulation, sustainability, environmental impact, all of these have had a knock-on effect to local livelihoods. And these changes have forced a lot of creativity as well. And that is certainly on display in our first guest, Ian McKinnon, who produces some of the best mussels you'll ever eat. Neil, can I just say, I am absolutely loving the trips in this series so far. You certainly know how to find a good location for a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's not hard out here. There's stories and there's storytellers, more importantly, <laughs> everywhere you turn. And Ian, who we're just about to meet, has got one of the best offices that I can think of. One of his sites is in Loch Eilert, a sea lock between Glenfinnan and Arasig along the road to the Isles. And his muscle production is such a great example of using a simple process to work together with nature to grow healthy and sustainable shellfish. And I suspect if there's something that Ian doesn't know about mussels, fishing and the local area, it's probably not worth knowing. 
Well, it wasn't all that hard to persuade Ian to take us out on his boat to show us his muscle lines, and I was absolutely fascinated and inspired, really by his dedication and his knowledge. And of course, as usual, the weather was absolutely glorious, the water was calm, and if it wasn't for the fact that Ian had to get back up to Malig to get another boat moved that afternoon, I would happily have stayed there all day long. Let's join him on the slipway at Lock Island. Right, shall we just jump in? Yep. Thank you. Right. Hello, I'm Ian McKinnon from Arasig Muscles. We're in Lachailup at the moment, at Lachailup Slip, and I'm just about to head out to the muscle lines. Let you have a look at last year's production and hopefully some of this year's ready to harvest. So it'll take us about under 10 minutes to nip over the loch. It's a lovely sunny day. So grab a seat and we'll go. Lovely. So now that we're recording, can you want to give us a bit of background into your your history with fishing, how it all started? Fishing? I was working in the labs at the Royal Ordnance Factory in Bishopton and the stench of the chemicals just proved too much. I came up to a wedding and got in conversation with the skipper of a fishing boat who was going down to Newland to pick up a new boat and he offered me a job and I grabbed the chance and I came back up. That was the 5th of May 1985. It's one of the very few dates that I remember. So we went down to Newland, picked up the Tayak mower, SS216, and steamed right up the west coast and round out onto Egg and fished lobsters there for about the following five years. First with Lackey McLean, the skipper of the Tayak mower, and then I bought a wee boat from McKechen and Carr in Arasig, I bought the Tarka. A Stuart's a Grimsey boat and I fished that myself. I'd say probably back in the 80s and 90s, the fishing industry in Malig locally was at its peak. Malig was the premier prawn port for Nephrops prawns. Uh, it was the premier prawn port in Europe. And it was fantastic. It was great to see. I mean, I was just, I, was, I wasn't a young fisherman, but I'd only started fishing. And to see some of these skippers coming in, guys that, you know, knew their stuff, knew what they were at, seeing the boats, it was just, it was showtime. And to come into Malig Harbour at night and see a line of boats, or even I was living out on Egg at the time, and the sound between Egg and Rum on a Thursday night or a Monday night, if it was calm, you would just hear this boom, 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 boom. <laughs> As these old gardener engines on a lot of big trawlers, and if it was dark enough, seeing the lights of them, a line of them just heading in one after the other to land the catch. 
there were young guys down working the, the, the slings to take the catch out of the hold and just prawns coming aboard, boats coming in. They would drop off the catch, they'd go and get ice and then they'd go and get fuel and then they would either, depending on the time of the, the fortnight, they would either head back out to sea or that was them tied up and they would go home for the weekend, depending on the state of the tide. I mean, everybody wanted a boat. There were guys queuing up to try and get berths on the boat. And the big boats, the, the successful boats, they had a queue of people waiting to get a job. It's not adding up anymore. You know, I think that, and that shows in the harbour that, uh, you know, I think there's five Malig boats now. I'm just going to take you up to the muscle lines now. Basically, a muscle line is an anchor either end rising up off, to, off of the seabed onto a line of floats. The floats provide the buoyancy to support the muscles as they grow. So you've got a line running horizontally on the surface, supported by floats, and from that, vertically, you have droppers, muscle droppers. And then the muscles come along, probably from February onwards. The muscles will spat. There's a microscopic larvae, muscle larvae, floating about in the sea looking for somewhere to settle. You put a rope out and this really filamentous algae, an algae that's long filaments, I think they call it maiden's hair, that grows on the rope, it just comes, it's like slime, long slime, and that grows. The muscle spat come along and settle on that and start to grow from microscopic. And probably at this time of year, you've got some droppers in, you'll see the slime starting to form. That'll grow, and then by early July, the, the algae starts, the slime starts to change texture and you start to see, it, it looks to me like grinding paste, the paste that you use for grinding in valves. That there's a sparkle in amongst the slime and that's the still really pinhead sized muscles and within a couple of weeks, they're probably the size of a match head and you can clearly identify them as small muscles. And then they just keep on growing. I'll take you up now and show you some that are, uh, this is last year's crop that I put in. These are droppers that I put in at this time of year last year. It's beautifully simple technology. So you're putting your droppers in and then you just let nature do its thing. Yeah, that's the simple idea. That, that's, there's a bit more to it than that a, yeah, well basically what you do yeah, you're providing a structure for the muscles to settle on uh, and grow out there's no other input other than the structure do you want to have a look let me show you this is, this is last year's harvest these were bare droppers. Hey, this time. Get my 
my gloves on. I'm oh good yeah, to, you can yeah. see them all stuck on the rope. Yep. Yeah, you can see that these have grown. It's almost like a bunch of a bunch of grapes, except it's ten meters long. You can see the barnacles starting on these. Everything at this time of year, the, and probably for the next three four months, the whole of the sea is just alive with life and breeding and spatting, and they're all looking for somewhere to settle. This is, you'll see the bisis there. That's they, they put out the beards and they create their own structure. Mm -hmm. That's the slime that I was talking about yeah. as well. You see that? You can rub those barnacles off still. Yeah. And see all these wee filaments. These are diatoms mm -hmm. of algae. And that's really just happened in the last two weeks since the sun came out. Yeah. It started a way back. Remember with that couple of good weeks in beginning yes. of March, yeah. was it? Yeah. And it was really warm. There was a growth then and then it died off as the temperature dropped. But this sunshine, and all of a sudden the whole place comes alive. Yeah. So how long are we talking about from you putting the bare rope down to actually harvesting the mussels? You can tweak it a bit, but I would probably be putting a rope in in March, April would be ideal. If no if I haven't got them in by the end of May, I tend to give up. You would say you're harvesting them between twenty-four months and thirty-six months. Twenty-four months to get the size and the you, you, that you want. After thirty-six months they tend to get fouled. Uh, and, you know, the market isn't so strong for them. So that ideally... Uh, and everything's done on, a, like, a three-year cycle. You would have three lines, you know, so you're putting one out brand new, one's one-year-old, and then the two- to three-year-old you're harvesting, and then you start it. Your one year is now two year, and just keep doing that. That's the theory of it. And I think so far it's it's worked. I think last year there was 50. We did about 50 tonnes, which is probably the smallest production in Scotland. And it's worked. It can be a real... can be hard at times, but in a day like today, yeah. and in a day like... It keeps you warm when it's cold and wet <laughs> and miserable. It, it, it gets you going. See, sometimes in the winter, you know, when, when it's really windy, they grip very, very tight onto the rope. These ones are coming off relatively easy. You know, they'll slide off at this time of year. Mm -hmm. But in the winter, when they're holding on, eh... You know, you're really having to work hard to strip them from the ropes. I do that by hand. Um, I've avoided mechanical stripping. Um, but you never know. My next purchase could be a mechanical stripper for the mussels, of course. Do you ever get sick of eating mussels? No. <laughs> uh, I, I rarely eat them. It's one of those absurd things. There was one day I was going out in the boat 
another boat that I had and I had a wee cooker on it and, and and I had made up my pieces, you know, which a cheese sandwich, it's pieces. You know, so I'd made up my piece and I, I left it on the pier while I rowed out, the, along with the bait, I'd left it on the pier and I rowed out to the boat and brought the bigger boat into the pier. This was down in Arasig, Arasig Marine. And when I'd get in, seagulls had eaten my cheese piece. <laughs> Uh, and I was most miffed and I, th I didn't really have the time to go back up the road and so I went out and I caught the most beautiful prawns that day and I didn't think to just take a pan full of water out of the sea and cook them, you know. So I starved all day and went home to a cheese piece when I could have been eating prawns. <laughs> I eat the mussels probably. Uh, when you've just harvested a thousand kilos, you know, the thought of then... But every now and again, I, yeah, I, I take them home and cook them up to try them, to see, you know, if there's any... If there's any problems, you know, how do they taste? Are they cooking well? Are they easy to clean? So, no, I never get sick of... Uh, as long as they look good... See when they're nice and clean and fresh like this and they're clean and easy and you're putting them through the grader and getting a good return. That's great. Ian McKinnon of Arasig Mussels, what a guy. I didn't think it was possible, but I now like mussels even more than I already did, thanks to meeting him. And it's no mean feat to produce such a high-quality catch either. There's there's a lot of administrative hoops to jump through. Any kind of aquaculture is financially risky. And it's also just very hard work. But Ian certainly makes the best use of that beautifully clear and clean water. So big thanks to him, as you say, for his time and his expertise. And it was funny because we ended up actually catching up with Ian later that night on what turned out to be a, a big Arasig night out. Where I was staying in the West Highland Hotel... I checked in that afternoon and they said, oh, there's a gig at Arasig, do you want to come? And I thought, well, OK, why not? And Neil, it turned out to be quite a good night, didn't it? It did. It was such a very, very Highland thing. Um, you guys came from Malig, swung by in a minibus to pick me up on the way to Arasig because, of course, you can't, you can't get around easily without a car, but you also can't drink and drive. So you get picked up by a minibus, taken between the villages... And it was lovely. It was intimate. It was fantastic live, live traditional music. But it, yeah, an incredibly memorable night. And it was just so lovely that, you know, I'm not a local like you are. I was just swept up along with you and all the locals, taken along, had a great night out and drank quite a lot of gin as well. Yeah, see, that's the thing. You can't help yourself. And you, you turn, you turn your back for one minute, and your, your glass has suddenly refilled itself. Um, that is the the Highland hospitality thing. And uh, before you know it, the hours fly by, the conversation flows, and it's just it's it's Scotland through and through. Oh, it was brilliant, and it was lovely to see Ian in in a different guise as well later that night. You can buy Ian's mussels from Andy Race's shop in Malig, and he also supplies most of the hotels and restaurants in the area, including Arasig's Shellfish Shack, which brings us on to our next story. How do you like a picnic on the beach, Freya? Well, I love the beach, but I'm not quite so keen on the, the classic car-baked sandy sandwich or the super greasy takeaway burger. But Neil, I know that you've been sampling an altogether different class of beach-friendly fare. Yeah, you can keep all that rubbish, but uh, how about a, a dressed crab or maybe a langoustine pint? 
Well, now you are definitely talking my language. Good. Well, I'm Seafood Daft too, and I was very happy to discover the Arisig Shellfish Shack. It's another fairly recent and frankly overdue arrival to the area, and it's where you can feast on some of Scotland's absolute finest. It's cleaned, it's cooked, and it's beach ready. Well, the shack is run by Paula Wilkinson, and Paula has what I guess you could call these days a portfolio career. She's a wedding celebrant who fuses her passion for good food and drink with giving couples a totally unique marriage. And out of those passions came bog cotton elopements and also the Arisig Shellfish Shack. And at the centre of both of those businesses is a very special beach that's close to both my heart and my home. We are at the very beautiful Camastaric Beach near Adasig. And what can we see over this, the distance? We've got quite a lot of islands coming into play. Yeah, right. So we can see egg, we can see rum, we can see sky and the coolins. Mm-hmm. Basically, mm-hmm. a very beautiful vista ahead of us. Yeah, and the tide is out, which yeah. is, makes it even better. Mm-hmm. And we've got maybe a dozen or so people on the beach, which is just far too busy, frankly. It is far it's, too busy. It's inconvenient. <laughs> but how often do you make it down to the beach? Uh, most days. Most yeah, days. most of walk, walk the dog every day on uh-huh. the beach. Yeah, it's a good spot. It is. And so what brought you to Arasig? I was born in Arasig. Okay. Um, so I was born here, lived all over the UK as well and then mm-hmm. in 2015 decided to come back home okay. and have been here ever since doing my thing. And what is your thing? Well, <laughs> so my thing is various things to be honest. <laughs> so it began really with doing elopements. So me and my friend Trevor, he's a photographer from Silver Photography we noted that we were getting a lot of the same weddings. I was getting the booking, he was getting the booking. Mm-hmm. And then we decided to join forces and we opened bog cotton elopements. So we just noticed that most of the people that were coming to marry here wanted tiny little intimate weddings. This is yep. pre-COVID as well. So before everyone had to do that, yep. <laughs> they were actually, it was a thing and people were preferring it. I suppose if... The average wedding in the UK now costs about £30,000. You could probably see why people are wanting to elope, you know, you have yeah. a nice weekly let, somewhere gorgeous like Driftwood House up there and uh-huh. make it your honeymoon, your wedding, everything all together, just the two of you. So do people actually get married on the beach then? Yeah, absolutely. So Scotland is one of only five countries in the whole world where you can get married wherever and whenever you want. So as a wedding celebrant, a lot of people get in touch because A, they can't actually believe that it's possible. Even in England, you know, it's impossible to marry just wherever you want. It has to be a licensed premises. So Camasar Beach, obviously, I mean, you've kind of set the scene already. It is, we haven't really gone into, for people that haven't been here, like it's, crystal clear water the beach is bone white it is pretty much like the bahamas really (laughs) and um, i've been to the bahamas and actually i think this beach is nicer (laughs) to be honest people can't believe it they just want to get married here so this is a really really popular spot for for those couples i see and so what um what would they do in addition to getting actually married on the beach? Are there places to stay locally, places to eat? How do you get involved in the seafood side of things? Yeah, so 
initially with bog cotton, so there's me and Trevor, and then our friend Claire Gunner as well. She's a local caterer in the area. Mm-hmm. So I would always send my couples. They would always ask, because they're never really from here, and they would always ask if I had recommendations for caterers or restaurants. And so I would always say Claire Gunner, because she's a fabulous cook. Anyway, she started getting in touch saying everyone always wants the same thing which is always local shellfish because I don't know if you guys are aware but off these crystal clear waters Mm -hmm. there is a hell of a lot of the world's best shellfish and when I say that I'm not even (laughs) I'm not exaggerating it really is and it gets shipped all over the world Mm -hmm. so these couples were always wanting kind of shellfish platters for two my partner is a fisherman and we just thought We'll just open a shellfish shack in Arisig. Yeah. And then we did. Arisig Shellfish Shack started last year um, at the beginning of June. And it was just a really great concept, it turned out, because everyone loved it. We loved it. Yeah. Such a wonderful... I've been on a couple of times as well. Yeah. It's just... It was crying out for it, I think. Yeah, I think. And you find that straight away people took to it immediately and it's been really popular. Oh my God, definitely. And it it did always surprise me anyway. I mean, through my whole life, my dad was also a fisherman in Arasig. I mean, it was was actually ridiculous. Like, these big articulated lorries would turn up with Vivier systems inside them and all his catch, it wouldn't go anywhere in Scotland. It would just get shipped straight. These huge lorries would just take it all live to France and Spain and it would get enjoyed there. While we were eating like prawns from Honduras or somewhere, Nicaragua from the co-op that tasted, frankly, crap. Didn't even taste like a prawn, just like a bit of rubber or something. (laughs) Yeah, it did always surprise me that nobody had ever thought about doing this before. Mm potentially they didn't think Brits were into it or I'm not sure but it turns out Brits are heavily into shellfish (laughs) so yeah why not it's delicious and where we are on Kamastarak we are five ten minutes drive from Arasig so it's possible for people to nip along to Arasig get some seafoods and enjoy it here on the beach for lunch oh god I mean that is the the absolute philosophy at the Arasig shellfish shack so it's all cooked and prepared and it's most simplest form, mm-hmm. so you can have raw shellfish, not raw shell, cooked <laughs> shellfish, but in its naked form. And then you just take it to the beach, enjoy it as a sandwich, or we do little tapas tubs with all sorts of different things in them, like potted crab or prong cocktails with local langoustines. Mm-hmm. And you just grab it and go. It, it's, we're an island nation. It yeah. should be what we eat. <laughs> yeah. Now, there's not that many businesses in the area because sparsely populated area is it difficult to to start up a business here i suppose it 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 probably is quite a difficult thing to do but i think if you've got a good concept and you're willing to make it work and you have the right people around you well anything's possible but i find certainly for me with with each thing that i've done it's never just me there's always other people involved so with the weddings it was Trevor from Silver Photography and Claire then from there me and Claire decided to get together and open the shellfish shack with Josh who owns the hotel which is annexed the shack's annexed off the hotel so that's a great collaboration it's worked so well and similarly what could possibly go better with local shellfish 
than a rum cocktail. Rum? <laughs> so, yeah, rum. Rum in Scotland, this is interesting. Tell yeah. us more. Yeah, so we decided years ago now, it, it, in fact, it was the year my first daughter was born, 2017. It was Christmas. My auntie car came up for Christmas and I handed her uh, a gin and tonic and she said apparently rum's the next big thing <laughs> and then me and my brother were kind of like hmm and then it sort of grew from that so now my brother is basically the complete brains of the outfit I have very little to do with the actual making of rum it's way more complicated than I ever thought it could possibly be it's like a science experiment yeah so, so do you have a distillery for this How yeah. does it, is it similar to whiskey and gin yeah, it was similar in, in, in the, the process of distilling, but it's a, a completely different beast in that you're, you're fermenting molasses as your base uh -huh. and then taking it from there. So a lot of, of rum and gin, I suppose, the, you, can, you can buy in, you can batch buy in a raw gin or a rum and then turn it into your own product effectively by enhancing it with your mm -hmm. own spices, flavours. However, we just decided we wanted to do that whole thing right from the beginning. Like we didn't want, we just wanted to cut out the middleman. So it's been a, <laughs> a long few years getting to grips with how to do it, but it's... Have you had a taste yet? Oh God, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. We've had a lot of taste. <laughs> we've drunk a lot of rum. <laughs> but uh, we think we've, we've fully fine-tuned it now. Oh, so yeah, it's Grey Dog Rum, which right. is based on a, a legend of this area, the Grey Dog of Meebel. You know, if you think of rum, it's always a little bit gnarly. There's always a bit of a dark edge to rum, mm -hmm, isn't mm -hmm. there? So we didn't really want it to be a kind of flowery thing. We wanted it to be a bit dark. And the Grey Dog of Meebel is a really dark tale. Tell us about the dark story behind the Grey Dog of Meebel. Well, <laughs> it's, uh, it's an incredible story. And actually, it's just perfect um, folklore. You know, and I love folklore as well. It's brilliant. Basically... At the time of the Peninsula Wars, there was a man called Dougald MacDonald and he had a fabulous Scottish deerhound, a big scraggly-haired, beautiful creature. Mm -hmm. um, and him and this dog were inseparable. They loved one another. But he was called away to the Peninsula Wars and he missed his dog and she missed him. And during the time that he was away, she ran up the hills beyond Meebel and um, swam out to a little island and actually had four pups. When he returned to see his beloved hound, all the villagers said, you cannot go near that island. The pups have had no human contact and they're known to be savages. He just thought, not my Elisade. That was the name of the dog, by the way, Elisade. My Elisade would never do that. So off he went up the hills, he swam across the loch to the island, but his dog wasn't there. She was out hunting and the four pups who are now fully grown dogs at this point came out of their heathery lair and ripped him to pieces. Nice. When his dog returned and saw what her pups had done to his, her faithful master, her doleful howls could be heard from miles around. The villagers 
took the remains of poor Dougald and buried him by the Meeble River, where the dog sat upon his grave. And in the style of, I suppose, Greyfriars Bobby, just sat there until the day she died, howling. Anyway, Mm. fast forward a few years. It turns out that this dog, the grey dog of Meeble, appears every now and again as the harbinger of death to any MacDonald in the area. So when you see a grey dog, it means your time's up if you're a McDonald's. <laughs> There's a lot of McDonald's in the area Exactly. As well. <laughs> exactly. So you've got to watch out. And actually, I have a dog that looks a bit like right. that, so I often wonder. And McDonald heritage. <laughs> I'm done for. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a great tale and one that is actually pretty dark when you yeah. think about it. And you've, in a very cheerful way, turned it into the rum story. Yeah, yeah. well, why not? <laughs> <laughs> why not? I feel like these stories really need to be told because, it, you know, it was the same with all folklore and all of these kind of local tales. It's a real travesty that they kind of get lost, you know, along the way. Yeah. And actually, you know, in another hundred years, maybe no one would even know that tale anyway anymore. You know, it's not told. At the time you, you know, yeah. kids just watch a bit of Peppa Pig these days, don't they? You know, there's not much um, talking and reading about ancient yes. folklore tales. So it's quite, it's quite nice to keep it fresh. <laughs> yeah, good point. Yeah. Well, Paula, thank you very much for, for your time and for a lovely walk on what is a very, very special beach to us both, I think. Yeah, no problem. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Well, if world-class seafood, cocktails and folklore are up your street, the Arasig Shellfish Shack is open from spring until October and it's right next to the Arasig Hotel. If you'd like to put a ring on it while you're on the beach, and I, I know local friends who have, you can find out about getting married by Paula at bogcottonelopements.com. And there's the whole story of the rum at grey-dog.com. From the sands of the West Coast, thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for more. Coming up, we've got the healing power of goats, yes, seriously, and a visit to a very inspiring art gallery. Neil, next time you're at the shack, get me a crab roll, will you? Will do. The rum cocktails are on you, though. No problem. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you could like, subscribe and share. Bye for now. Slanger. Coastal Connections, Road to the Isles, is produced by Freya Hellier. Many thanks also to Les Back for the additional music and to the podcast sponsor, Highlands and Islands Enterprise. <laughs>